Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, and I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. Um, we already talked about it, but just like final plug this uh, next week. First of all, tonight, uh, I have faith, but I really think the Bengals are going to crush the Bucks. So just come to the concert, all right? Um, I want to believe, but my optimism is waning. So um, tonight, love to see you there. Grab a ticket. And then uh, this next week, we've already said it, but it is such a big deal um, for our church Christmas Eve. I, I think the best invite all year long, even more than Easter, and I shared a few weeks ago, my friend, I keep thinking about this, the last big services we have, which was Easter, and she talked about inviting three of her family members that wanted, and I don't overstate this, this is her words, wanted nothing to do with church, but they were like, I will go get, you know, mother-in-law for back. And so they came, and they, that night, there was, or that day when that service was, two of them placed their faith and trust in Jesus. The other one began kind of a journey of investigating Jesus. And in her words, like their view of the church and what the church was began to change um, forever. And that, I understand that doesn't happen every time, but I'm telling you, you have no idea what hangs in the balance of an invite. We say this all the time. And from what we talked about a few weeks ago, the invitation is just come and see. I can't answer all your questions. I don't know all the theology. I may be busted up. In fact, that may be a good invitation. Hey, I'm a mess. I'm pretty sure you are too. You should come. Um, this is an incredible time. And last thing I would say is, because we're an outward-focused church, we're for the city, for the community, this season isn't just about us. It's about um, what God wants to do through us. And so on these, these five services over two days, part of it, for a lot of people like me um, and others, we rearranged plans just to meet guests and neighbors that we've been inviting to you know, grab coffee or whatever in the lobby and um, attend services for that purpose in mind. Because again, we don't want to just celebrate this season. We want that celebration to lead us into actually reaching our city and community. So um, this next week, huge week, and then we're off a couple weeks, and then I start a brand new series called It's Time. And I'm so excited about this. We're going to talk about the excuses um, that hold us back and moving past the excuses that hold us back. And I love talking about this kind of stuff. This is a great invite because this is just a human thing. So I don't even have to believe in God. Um, there are things in our life that are excuses that we disguise as reasons and they keep us from where we want to go in life. So we're going to talk about it for four weeks um, starting in January. So cannot wait for that. So with all that said, you guys ready um, for part two of Unbelievable? All right. I don't want to throw the 9 a.m. under the bus, but I like from the start, I was like, you guys ready? I got one golf clap and then just crickets from everybody else. So this is a rough service. Um, here's what we said starting last week, and you can go back and podcast that, listen to it, watch it, whatever you want to do. But just to be honest, and I don't know where you're coming from, but this is just true. A lot of us like look at, read the Christmas story. It's just, it's a little unbelievable. Some of it is really unlikely. A lot of it is unexpected. And it's just hard. Like, there's a lot of questions there. And I grew up in all of this, and I do believe it. And I'll tell you why in a second. But I just want to acknowledge all of that. And I said last week, the people who lived the story, they felt all those things. Kind of unbelievable, unlikely, unexpected. 
But a couple of things on this, because backstory to anything is really, really important. So there's two things in regard to backstory. And the first one I tell you guys all the time if you've been around here, but as crazy as a Christmas story is, as unlikely as it is, as hard to believe as some of it is, here is the epicenter of our faith that's really important, especially if you're investigating. We don't follow Jesus because of faith. And, and we don't follow Jesus because we have faith in faith, which is unfortunately how some of you grew up in terms of religion. We have faith in Jesus because Jesus did something in history that validated everything about his life and every prophecy and everything that he said. He rose from the dead. So that may be hard to grapple with. I get it. There is overwhelming historical evidence. That's why I always joke, like, don't start with, you know, the seeming inconsistencies in the scripture or where the dinosaurs went. All those are great questions. Start with, did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, game over. You got to follow the guy who came back to life. And so I say all that to say, if somebody rises from the dead, that overshadows how they got into the world. Now, how they got in the world, that's important. That's a big part of the Christmas story. But my point is you don't even need to start there. If it's kind of un- unbelievable to you, a little bit crazy, that's fine. But start with the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, the guy that rose from the dead, that overshadows how he got into the world. So that's the first thing in terms of backstory. Second thing is this. As you begin to like pull back the layers of the story, and this was my point in this short series, is we kind of skim over it and we read it and it's like, you know, you have flashbacks of Charlie Brown episodes and you've heard the verses so many times and that's all there is to it. And yet there's so many layers and so much depth to it, which is what I wanted to bring out in the series. And the thing that you will find is what is unbelievable on the surface, and it is, is the very thing that ultimately makes it remarkable and incredible and hopefully for some of you life-changing. Like the Christmas story does not begin with two people who are trying to figure out how they got pregnant. It starts actually with people who are pretty sure that they can't ever get pregnant. And it doesn't begin with two people who are looking for a place to have a baby. It actually begins with a couple people who are certain they can't have a baby. In fact, the Christmas story begins about 2,090 years before where um, God doesn't show up initially with an angel in Matthew and Luke. He actually shows up in Genesis. And God makes this what I would describe as an unbelievable, incoherent, at least when it was made, an impossible promise. And Abraham, this guy all the way back in Genesis in the Old Testament, somehow believed that promise and it set the stage for everything that God was going to do. That's actually where the Christmas story begins. Now, real quick, because I want to read Genesis and I'm going to move on. Because uh, again, we speak to a lot of skeptics on radio and line and watching, and, and you're here today. So I get immediately Genesis. You're like, I'm out. That's unintellectual. So I get all that. I, for just a second, though, I don't want you to think Genesis like the Bible. By the way, this is a library of documents. It's not a book. So when you're like, I don't believe the Bible, totally get that. Like what parts of the library do you not believe? You kind of have to go document by document and then figure all that out. It's complicated. So this is a library of ancient documents. And so for a second, I want you to think Genesis, ancient document, 3,000 years old, that was preserved, that was copied. And then you should just consider this. People, countless people, gave their lives so that ultimately this was preserved, copied, and included in the Jewish scriptures. The Bible, this is important. I don't have time to explain it. But the Bible did not create Genesis. And so in Genesis, God makes this promise. And he says to Abram, later who would be Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. This is the beginning of the Christmas story that you never hear about. And to the land that I'm going to show you. 
Now, here's the thing. We do not know why God chose Abraham. His story is romanticized. And for some, I get it. It's good reason. He had these amazing moments of faith. He also had other parts of his life. You're like, eh, you know, could have below average. Um, but God comes to Abraham, and we don't really know why he chose Abraham. Just like we don't really know why he chose Joseph. We don't really know why he chose Mary. We just know he needed to start with somebody somewhere. And here's the thing that's really important. I just want to say this and I'll, I'll move on. But this is so important about the story of God and how God operates and moves. God is way less enamored with talent than we are. We love to talk about ability and talent and skill. God is always prioritizing availability over ability. And that's really good news for some of us. Other of us, we have an inflated view of ourselves. So it's like, why wouldn't God use me? But for most of us, it's like, we always feel like there's a deficit. We have too much in our past. We don't know enough. We don't have enough to offer. Like you had a 1.8 GPA. It's like all of this stuff that kind of makes up your story. And yet over and over again, you see God coming back to kind of the, the words that Jesus echoed in the New Testament. Your will be done. And over and over again, God is looking for people who are available to go, hey, God, you have a will, you have a destiny for my life. I don't know where it's gonna lead me, but I'm in. And the reality is that God can take you way beyond your normal capacity to fulfill his will and destiny for your life. So he's just looking for availability. And so he comes to Abraham. He's like, I want you to leave and I want you to go. And I want you to, and this is really profound. I want you to leave all of your security and all of your safety. And in the ancient world, that was the territory that you had all your land, your family, your tribe, and then Abraham, I want you to leave, and then I'll just tell you when you get there. Go. And in verse two, here's the promise. I will make you into a great nation. And Abraham, at this point, was promise, like, I'm 75 years old, and I don't have, yeah, 75 years old, and I don't even have a kid yet. I'll just settle for being a grandfather I think the nation talk, that's a little much. And so he says, no, I'm gonna make you into a great nation and I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna make your name great. And again, at this point in history, he's like, what? I've left everybody that I know. I'm more likely to be forgotten than I am to be famous. There's no way that I'm gonna leave what I know in this ancient world and then somehow a nation's gonna rise from a 75-year-old dude. And then he says, he doesn't, he's not done and you will be a blessing, which again, incoherent part of the promise. In a world, you know this, right, that knew nothing but violence and corruption and might makes right. Nobody blessed anybody in the ancient world. That somehow I'm going to be a blessing in a culture that doesn't even know really what that means. And then verse three, and I will bless those who bless you. I love this. And whoever curses you, I will curse, i.e. I don't care what happens, I'm going to keep my promise and nothing is going to get in the way of it. I'm going to do what I say that I'm going to do. And then comes the unbelievable, incoherent, impossible to fulfill part of this promise. And I just can't overstate this enough. This is right up there with a virgin giving birth. This is right up there with the dude rising from the dead. This is on par with all the, just in the moment when it was delivered, it's crazy. He says, in all peoples on earth will be blessed, Abraham, through you. And part of what I hate, I love it, but I hate it, is that you, many of you know the end of the story, but in the moment when this is delivered to Abraham, it couldn't have been more impossible. I mean, Abraham has no idea, first of all, how big the earth is. He has no idea the scope of this promise, but God shows up to say, one day, 
in every ethnic, across every ethnic group, in every culture, in every nation, every tribe, every generation. Through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. Not, not conquer the entire world, which is all the Roman world or the ancient world. I'm going to bless the world. In fact, in that culture, no nations blessed other nations, right? Like there was no humanitarian aid at this point in history. Convoy of hope was not floating around like when this promise was made. Nobody did this. We plundered people. We enslaved people. We're about corruption and violence and overtaking. That's all the world knew. And then this crazy, ridiculous promise shows up to one old guy to say, through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. The world's going to be better off because of you. And again, the reality of the moment's like, who's going to believe that? How in the world is that going to happen? How are you even going to do that? How through one guy like me are you going to bless the world? Like I imagine Abraham's, he's at that season of life where he's like, I just want to play golf. I want to eat dinner at four o'clock. I want to go home and watch my programs. Like all that stuff that I'm assuming you do at that age, right? Like I, I bless the world, have a family. It's crazy. And yet somehow Abraham believed that incoherent, impossible. How is God going to do that promise? And then you probably know some of this story, but I just want to set it up. So eventually Abraham has Isaac, right? And then Isaac has Jacob. And then just real quick to unveil some of their family dysfunction, if you weren't aware of it. Esau's not up here. Esau was actually Jacob's brother. He was the oldest. He should have received the inheritance, the birthright, like all of the benefits. He doesn't. Because Jacob decides that in the most shady way possible, I mean the most spectacular like scheme of deception, which you can read the story for yourself, he takes his brother's inheritance, he gets his birthright, he steals everything that belongs to him, and now he's included as next in line in the story in the line of Abraham because, I mean, he just absolutely ripped his brother off. And so Abraham has Isaac and Isaac has Jacob, And then by the way, just a little more family dysfunction, Abraham on multiple occasions takes his wife, go into Egypt and he lies about his wife, says it's his sister because he's afraid that Pharaoh is gonna take his wife as part of his harem and it'll kill him. So he's like, well, she's my sister. And he offers his wife up to the most powerful man in the world and lies about it multiple times. I mean, so much dysfunction. Then ultimately Jacob has 12 sons and then we're not done with the dysfunction. His oldest kids end up looking at the younger brother and decide, this guy is annoying, he is arrogant, he won't shut up, we should kill him. And then they have this moment of compassion, like, we shouldn't kill him, we should sell him. And so they sell him to a band of gypsies going to Egypt. And so you've got Abraham who's lying about his wife, offering her up to the most powerful man in the world. You've got Jacob and Esau and that whole ridiculous scenario where Jacob is just a liar. Then you've got, you know, these sons of Jacob that sell their brother into slavery because they had just enough compassion not to kill him. And all of this is originating from Abraham who God decided would be the guy to bless the entire world. Two things you get from that. Number one, your Christmas family dinner is not as bad as you thought it was. That's the first one. (laughs) Second thing, that thing is really relevant to us. God can choose to use whoever God wants to use. (laughs) 
And for some of us like me, that's really good news when you constantly feel inadequate for God to use you to do anything. Like that's the story of God. And so Abraham is the guy. And eventually Jacob, the 12 sons, and the 12 sons finally, against all odds, become a nation. And you're thinking at this point, okay, he's teed it up. This is when God's gonna do his thing. This is when God's gonna show off. This is when God's gonna fulfill his promise. Nope. They become a nation of slaves. And for hundreds of years, they're in Egyptian slavery. And they can't bless anybody. For hundreds of years, they can't bless anybody. Nobody is blessing them. The world is not better off because of them. And I can't overstate this enough. And everybody at that point in history had given up on the promise that God had made. There was no way that that was going to happen. There was no way that God could fulfill that. And then God sends Moses, right? And if you know that whole story or you watch the movie, Moses is the great deliverer. And so Moses stands up against Pharaoh and God gives him his power. And he ultimately, it's an incredible story, he leads the Israelite people out of Egyptian slavery after hundreds of years of being occupied and you know, mistreated by them. And he releases them from Pharaoh's control and he leads the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery and captivity. But if you know the story, when they get out of Egyptian slavery or captivity, they didn't suddenly feel blessed In fact, most of them wanted to go back. It was torturous. It was 40 years in the wilderness. Again, nobody felt blessed. Nobody felt like they were better off. Nobody felt like God was doing anything unique or special through them. It just felt like another letdown. And whatever God promised hundreds of years ago, it is not gonna happen through us. And then as they're delivered from slavery, there is a war after war. There's bloodshed, there is war, there is all kinds of violence. Eventually they go past the Red Sea, they go into Canaan, they face down the Canaanites and there's again, incredible carnage. And the Canaanites, when they have the Israelites come in are like, we want you to leave. Like the Israelites are there for a while and they're like, we're not better off because of you. In fact, they would say, you're a curse, not a blessing. Like, you need to get out of here. Obviously, God has called an audible on his plan. He changed his mind. He's not gonna bless through you. He's gonna find another way because it is not happening. And there's all of this violence, all of this war, all of this carnage, and nobody's being blessed. Now, just real quick side note, again, because I always think this way. And now I'll get back to the story. But side note, addendum, like, I, I know a lot of you, like the war of violence, the bloodshed in the Old Testament, it's one of the big obstacles to you for following Jesus. In fact, it's one of the reasons that you've kind of determined there is not a God or God is not good. And I honestly, I get all of that. But just real quick note on that. What you have to understand is all of that bloodshed, all of that war, all of that violence, it was normal in that culture. Now that doesn't make it okay or less horrific, but it was normal. And here's what it actually describes or here's what it actually reveals. It's not an argument against the existence of God. That violence is not an argument against the goodness of God. It was actually just an indicator of what culture looks like without God. Because in that ancient culture, they served the pantheon of gods that were idols. And just so you know what they thought about gods in the ancient times, they had all of these gods that were all kind of, you know, according to a class system. And none of those gods cared about human beings. I mean, all the gods that maybe you studied about in school, none of them. They didn't value human beings. The ethics of love, generosity, kindness, as we know it in the civilized world today, it did not exist in that. And so the gods couldn't give, they didn't care about people at all. 
And so it's not an argument against the existence of God. It just reveals a culture without God. See, the only reason that this idea of Old Testament violence moves you is because you're on the other side of the Christmas story. You're on the other side of the baby in a manger. And the reality is that the reason that it moves you or the reason that, that it somehow pricks your conscience is because the baby that was born in Bethlehem in a manger, I can't overstate, introduced an ethic into the ancient world that the ancient world was not aware of. And that ethic changed the world and it changed how people thought even if they don't acknowledge the source of that change. Like, here's what's crazy, and I'll, I'll, I'll move on. The very things that cause you to doubt the existence or the goodness of God, you're aware of because of God. Like, the violence and the bloodshed and the war that move your conscience or move you to a place where your conscience is just can't handle it, and that conscience leads you to doubt God, that was actually introduced by God. And so back to the story, a thousand years later, this family, this nation finally becomes a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And you're like, all right, here we go. And then David becomes king. And maybe you know the story from infamous David and Goliath. And David, as we looked at last week, was this warrior king. So he basically defeated all of Israel's enemy and they became the world power at this point in history. And then David... Um, basically hands the baton of the throne to Solomon. His son becomes the third king of Israel. And Solomon leads now the world power into this age where they had peace on every side of their kingdom and they had extraordinary wealth, extraordinary influence. Nobody could touch Israel. And at this point in history, you're like, here it is, the stage is set. If ever God was going to reveal what he was going to do, fulfill his promise, bless the world through Israel, make every nation better off and ultimately fulfill what all of the prophets had pointed toward, this is the moment. This is when God's going to do it. It's never going to get better for Israel than it is in this moment. And yet God didn't. In fact, Solomon ends up marrying all of the daughters of the enemy nations and he adopts their idols and begins to worship their idols. And so God fulfilled another promise because he told Israel, I wanna show you off to the world and then through you, I'm gonna do something that's gonna be incredible through every generation, but you gotta follow me. And if you don't, then I'm gonna divide your kingdom and the temple is gonna come crumbling down eventually. And then God basically makes them this promise because I'm gonna do something that's way bigger than the temple. I'm gonna do something way bigger than what's happening in this moment and I'm gonna do something for all the world in every generation. And so Israel's best opportunity to see God fulfill the promise was lost. And the kingdom was divided and the economy was divided and the military was divided and 300 years later in about 700 BC, the Northern Kingdom is about to be overrun by Assyria and the Southern Kingdom, Judah, they have invaders at their doorstep. And as Israel is divided 1,200, 1,300 years after the promise, the northern southern kingdom is about to be decimated. It's all going to come crumbling to the ground. And at that moment, God speaks. And he says through Isaiah 49, 6, and I will make you a light for the Gentiles. And with everything that was happening, with invaders at their doorstep, they're like, no, 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 we're a joke. We're not even going to survive. And then he goes on, that you may bring my salvation. And they're like, we can't even save ourselves. 
We can't even keep our kingdom intact. You will be a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends. The what? To the ends of the what? And then after this prophecy, they lost their independence to Assyria. They're in chaos and carnage for 300 years. Eventually, maybe you know this, the Babylonians come in and they decimate their city. They, they take their best and brightest in government and they exile them away. They're, they're, like, they're completely occupied. They're completely overrun. Now they have no city left. They really have no kingdom left. Babel, Babylon is the world power. And in the midst of all of that chaos, all that they've lost, all of the uncertainty, God then sends another prophet by the name of Malachi. And I'm telling you, at that moment with everything that was happening, where they have nothing, they have nothing left, what Malachi says was impossible. My name, God says, will be great among the nations. And at this point in history, they're like, this is not a good time to be talking about your name being great among the nations. Like Zeus's name's gonna be great among the nations, not yours. Your name is being mocked. Your name or your nation is pathetic. We can't protect your nation. We have no nation left. Babylon is the world power. Stop the hype, stop the PR campaign. Zeus has won out. Your name is not gonna be great anywhere, anytime in history. It's over. No, 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 my name's gonna be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name. And basically, this is a veiled reference where people worship around the world in the decades and the years to come, they're gonna worship me because my name will be great among the nations. And they're listening to this prophecy and just rolling their eyes. Nah, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And at this point, there was no possible way for a descendant of Abraham to ever bless every other nation, to ever make the world a better place. Israel was conquered by Babylon. They were left in ruins. Then they were conquered by the Persians. Then eventually the Greeks come in and they take their turn and they overrun Israel and they decimate Israel and the Greeks are the world power. And again, Israel has nothing left. And then if that weren't enough in 63 BC, Pompey, later known as Pompey the Great, he comes in and now he leads Rome and Rome is the world power and he absolutely obliterates Israel. There is again, violence and bloodshed and carnage. And again, it's just another indicator that God does not have what it takes. It's not gonna happen. And Israel is never gonna stand again. And in fact, in history, it says that Pompey the Great, right, and I can't overstate, if you were a Jewish person at this point in history, this is just overwhelming. He rode his horse into the temple, which in their mind was the epicenter of God's activity. It was the essence of God's presence. It was the only thing that Israel had left. And Pompey the Great, just to rub their noses in it, rides his horse into the temple. He tears it apart. He desecrates the temple. He steals things. He breaks things. He carries it off. 
And then he rides his horse into the Holy of Holies as we know it. He tears the curtain and then he goes to what we know as the Holy of Holies, but in ancient times they called it the God Vault because every nation, every pagan nation had a God Vault that housed their idol that they worshiped to. And so Pompey the Great wanted to know who's the idol of Israel. And so he rolls into the God Vault and recognizes they don't have anything there. They don't have an idol. What a joke in the nation of Israel is. Now they have no nation. I just desecrated their temple. Their God can't do anything about it. And on top of all that, they don't even have an idol to worship. And Pompey rides his horse back out of the city. And it was a declaration to everybody living during that time that Jupiter is more powerful than Yahweh and nothing's ever gonna change it. And God was right in one regard. And they became a nation. But there would be no unbelievable, incoherent, impossible promise that was going to be fulfilled. It ended right there. All nations could not be blessed. Israel would not be a light. And the Jewish God would not be worshipped. Which is why this story is so remarkable. Because when everybody had given up hope, and the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham was out of reach is when God moved. But when the set time had fully come, as Galatians says it, here's what that verse means. This is the Christmas story in Galatians. When the set time had fully come, when God, after thousands of years, had everything just the way he wanted it, when suddenly there was an expanding empire when suddenly now there was this exported Roman and Greek culture where there was a common culture and language that the civilized world shared, when God had everything just right, where finally there was a seaport system and a highway system that connected the major hubs of the civilized world, when God waited till everything was just right and there was peace among conquered civilized nations, and now for the first time in history, there was a mechanism that God could use to get the world's attention. When the set time had fully come and everybody had given up hope and nobody was expecting it. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And here we are. Like 2,000 years later, and again, you can love Jesus, you can hate Jesus, you can't ignore Jesus. All over the world, all over the globe, Mary's name is being heralded. 2,000 years later, 3,000 years after the promise, how in the world do we know her name? And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, when none, none of Israel felt favored at the time. The Lord is with you. And you have found favor with God and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, Joshua. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And then I love this. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. Because God made a promise and God's promises will not be thwarted. They will not be thwarted by nations and kings. They will not be thwarted by culture. 
They will not be thwarted by generations. They will not be thwarted by enemies. They will not be thwarted by whatever you can bring at this message and this movement to discredit it. God made a promise thousands of years before that I'm going to bless the world through you and there is nothing that's going to stop it. And when I'm ready, I'm gonna fulfill it. And there is no way with the Christmas story that we're so familiar with and the verses that we've heard so many times, in that moment as Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem, Ephrata, as they roll into that city, there's no way they could have fully known that this symbolized the fulfillment of that promise. 2,000 years, 40 pregnancies later, God finally delivered through Abraham, the one who would bless all of the nations that the world would be blessed through him, that Israel turns out they would be a light. The Jewish carpenter from no name Nazareth who didn't travel more than 30 miles from his home, turns out that a couple thousand years later, millions of people all over the globe would worship him as savior and Lord. It turns out that the nation of Israel would bless the entire world because God keeps his promise. And as I, I wind this down, I just, I want to say this to some of us, like even if you don't believe this yet, or maybe you never believe it, and not sure about it, and I don't know about God, I don't know about Jesus. Here's the thing that's undeniable, and this is just historical. You can kind of research this on your own, that 2,000 years later, you have been impacted by the birth of the baby in Bethlehem. It has impacted, it has shaped your life. It has shaped your worldview. Like every time you have been compelled to do something out of this feeling of compassion that you don't even think about. You just think about, I'm a human being. This is about how human beings in civilized worlds, how we operate, it's how we think. No, they don't. When Jesus showed up in Bethlehem, the ethic of compassion as you define it was not known in that ancient world. And then a baby in Bethlehem brought it to planet earth. This idea of an ethic of generosity, well, we just give. I don't have to believe in God to give. We're just made that way. And civilized people in, in, in the you know, developed world, like we want to be generous. It's just intuitive. It's in us. No, it's not. That ethic of generosity, it didn't show up until a baby in Bethlehem showed up. The idea that every single individual is equal That's not just an an intuitive human idea because when Jesus stepped foot on planet earth, every individual was not equal. The idea that the marginalized have value and we just kind of accept that. When Jesus showed up, they would discard baby girls on what they would call a dung hill because they couldn't carry the family name and nobody even thought anything of it. They would exile lepers. They wouldn't allow disabled to go into the temple and worship because somehow God was angry at them. They didn't have value. The marginalized didn't have worth. And then a baby in Bethlehem showed up and it changed your worldview 2,000 years later. The idea that we should do good for those who can't and won't do anything good for us. You don't even have have to be a God follower to espouse that. That's just how we think as a good human being. That's the kind of life that I want to live. Well, unbeknownst maybe to you, that ethic of doing good for those who can't and won't do anything good for you, it was introduced by the baby in Bethlehem and it has changed your worldview. It has changed our worldview. It has changed the world even if we don't acknowledge the source of that change. 
Because Jesus said, God said eventually through Jesus that one day I'm gonna bless every nation, every generation is gonna be impacted. And I'm gonna offer something to the entire world, every ethnic group, every tribe, every nation, every culture, every language, every generation. So I say all of that to end with this. I have no idea where this hits. I'm always, I feel the weight every time I communicate to thousands of people on the radio or who are watching or listening and people who are in the room knowing that the application hits in like 4,000 different directions. So I just wanna say this as we close because maybe you grew up with the faith that a lot of us grew up in, which really just didn't give you good answers. It was just, you just need to have faith in faith. And Jesus never said that. And that kind of religious system is a house of cards when it's not tethered or anchored to anything so that when you start rolling through some kind of life circumstance where you feel like that God's maybe promised you something or, or there's something on the other side or you're believing that God's with you and for you, if it's just tethered that you should just have faith, it just doesn't get you very far. The reason we have faith is because God did something in history so that we could anchor our confidence to the fact that God just didn't say that he would keep his promises. God has kept his promises. And right now, if you're in a spot right now where you are clinging to what just feels like an unbelievable promise, like God, how how are you gonna get me through this? How am I gonna survive the onslaught of these emotions? How How am I gonna wait where I'm still waiting for a prodigal to come home? I feel like at 16, you promised me like this was your will for my life and I don't see it coming to fruition. And I don't know how I'm gonna survive this dark night of the soul. And I don't know what you're trying to do through this unreconciled relationship when I've done everything that I could. I don't know how I'm gonna be able to hang on, but I'm clinging to the promise that you're with me, that you're for me. And in some cases, it's very personal to you because you feel like that God has given you something for the future and that may very well be be God, but it hasn't come to fruition. God hasn't seemed to answer your prayer. God doesn't seem to be present. And the only thing I want to tell you is when it seems like it's over, when God doesn't seem like he's present, when you can't see the fulfillment of that promise, that is not the time to give up. Because all throughout history, and this is what makes me uncomfortable about God, if I were to be straight, that when you're in a place where you have nowhere else to go and the promise seems out of reach and your hope is at the end of itself and you don't know what to do next, this is the uncomfortable reality of following God that generally that is the epicenter of where God begins to do his greatest work. And so that doesn't change anything. That's not emotionally satisfying, but I just wanna tell you wherever you are in your circumstances, and speak this over you in this moment. And by the power of the spirit of God, maybe you would believe it by faith, not because you wanna believe it, but because God has done something in history. Whatever your circumstances are in that marriage, the fact that you don't have any money, that emotionally you're struggling, you're depressed and can't find a way out. God gave you a promise that he hasn't fulfilled and you're waiting for 12 years. The addiction that you can't get out of, God, when are you gonna show up and answer this prayer? Whatever it is, I just wanna tell you, based on what God has already done in history, God is active in your circumstances. And God knows. And God is interested. And God is working. And even when your circumstances argue against it, God can be trusted. 
And part of the message of Christmas is that it is a reminder. And if nothing else, I want it to be this reminder for you. When everything seems lost, in history, when everything seemed impossible, when everybody had given up hope, God moved. Would you pray with me over the house? Would you stand for just a second? And I'm going to ask you, if you would, just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're new to an environment like that, I'm well attuned to the fact that even that can seem weird, and I get it. But in this moment, I just, in a culture where we struggle so much to be present, this is, this is a moment to just try to be present. And for some, this moment means nothing. But for others, this moment actually means everything. And so I just, I want to give a really simple invitation. I want to direct it simply. And um, the first thing I'd say for some of you, you're crossing the line of faith today in places and spaces that I don't even know about. I'll never know your name, but this is the moment where you somehow just believe it's true. That God lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And he died on the cross, the death that you should have died, that all of us should have. And then he walked out of a grave alive. And this is the moment where you recognize I cannot earn my way to God. I'm not good enough. I can't outdo or undo my past. And so I'm placing my faith and trust in the fact that Jesus died. Jesus rose again and I'm trusting him to be my savior. And I'm just gonna let that settle and then God's gonna do his thing. And there's gonna be people who embrace faith and trust in Christ. And I don't even need to know about it. And so if that's you, I just want to welcome you to the family of God to become a son and a daughter of God. You can simply pray a prayer like this. Prayer doesn't save you. It's your declaration of trust. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose again. And right now I'm not trusting me. I'm trusting what you've done for me. Forgive me, save me. The scripture says when you call on the name of the Lord like that, you become a son and daughter of God in that moment. But then another invitation that I want to give for you is nobody looking around, just to lift up your hand. And it seems... It seems like a small thing. It seems trite, but I know from experience that even small physical declarations help anchor the heart. And so for some of you, you're just in a season right now. You're in, in a decision-making process or you're in an eight-year-long battle of God. Where are you at and why haven't you come through? and Why haven't you fulfilled this? And the declaration that you need to make and then just ask the Spirit of God to help your heart and your emotions catch up with it is, I just don't want to give up. And like people for hundreds of years that were waiting for a promise that they actually never saw fulfilled. God, I wanna trust that you're with me, that you're for me, that you're working in me and just help me in the midst of this with all of my questions to not give up, to believe that you are a God that keeps your promises, that you are a God that is with me and for me. And so nobody looking around, if that's you, whatever your circumstance is, and you can online, wherever you're listening and physically in the room, just lift up your hand to go, God, in this circumstance, this situation with what I'm facing, help me not to give up. Help me to believe that you're a God that keeps your promises and that you're with me. All over the house, if that's you and you just need to make a physical declaration, God, this is my prayer. My hand raises my prayer. Help me not to give up. Help me to trust you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, I just want to pray for those right now that are in the middle of something. They're, they're coming through something. They just, they've been waiting for a long time. Give them the grace that they need in this moment. Help them to sense your presence and your power. And Lord, as we end with this final song, Spirit of God, I pray for some, it, this would be a declaration and an anthem. 
that personally, God, we just want your spirit to work in us as followers of Christ, if we are followers of Christ this morning, to encourage us, to empower us, to give us what we need in this season. And then, Lord, our, our prayer and declaration is also that this is what we want for our city and community. Spirit of God, move. Even over this next week, we have a tremendous opportunity with thousands of people in our, our heart is that as we invite, as we pray, as we plan, as we share the gospel or the good news, that there would be so many for the first time that would just recognize you are who you say you are and you're a God that keeps your promises. And so as we end, it is our prayer, God, we pray that you would move and specifically spirit of God do what we could never do on our own and bring the full force of your resurrection power in us and in our city and in our community. And we pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.